Hey guys, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by Pyro Putty. This is a product that uh, I'm very excited about as far as reinventing the wheel when it comes to fire starting technology. You can get Pyro Putty wet, it's still going to light. You can attach it to a wet log, it's going to burn long enough to start a fire on that wet wood. So when it comes to boosting morale in the backcountry, what what is better than a a warm fire, right? There's nothing. You get home from a long day, back to camp. You've been chasing elk through the mountains or mule deer or whatever for you know, from sunup to sundown. You're cold and you're wet, and you can't get a fire started. Not because you don't have a fire starter, but because that fire starter doesn't do the job. Well, Pyro Putty does, and you can find it at pyroputty.com. It's a size of about a can of dip. That's all it is. And inside that can of dip, you got a seven-hour burn time. You put a, a piece the size of a nickel on a stick, and it's going to burn for 8 to 10 minutes. It's Pyro Putty. You need it in your backcountry kit. It's going to boost morale. Could save your life. You never know. Uh, but you can find it at pyroputty.com. Everybody knows when they try to stay, you got to shoot them down. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody to the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Coyote, the name of that one from Jared Morris. Kicking things off for us here today, uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, our longtime presenting sponsors. Thanks to you guys and gals for being here. It is a pleasure, a treat, and an honor to be talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks today. We've got a great show lined up for you, one that I'm certainly excited about, but more so than that, I am excited about hunting season. It is practically here. Dove season will fire off just two weekends from now, which God, I can't believe summer's over. Kids went back to school this week. Thank God. <laughs> I love them. But man, when you work out of the house, whoo, summers can be pretty long when you're running daddy daycare. But uh, no, we had a great summer. Hope you all did as well. I tell you what, though, for any new parents out there, and, and this comes from firsthand experience, and, and it was something that older parents have been telling me for a long time. Kids grow up quick. You know how moms take the obligatory first day of school photo right they all do it and they post it all over social media my wife did it and I actually you know that photo of my kids popped up in the feed and I was like golly they're six four and four now where did time go it flies so cherish those moments uh, because they don't stay small for long and man with that being said I'm glad they're back in school <laughs> Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you today. Here's what's on the docket. We're going to kick things off by talking Atlantic Flyway Mallards. What's going on with those greenheads? I recently saw the uh, Flyway bag limit was decreased to two mallards per hunter for this season. Uh, not sure why. Mallards are doing great across the rest of the continent. So what's up in the Atlantic Flyway? We discussed with Ducks Unlimited uh, Chief Scientist Tom Mormon. A longtime friend. He'll be here in just a few minutes. Next, we will jump into some 
international conservation issues with Dallas Safari Club's executive director, Corey Mason. Um, he just returned from Africa, had some meetings with a country who has really been in the news a lot lately as far as hunting bans are concerned. Uh, also, CITES, he's going to the uh, CITES convention next week. If you don't know what CITES is, it's basically why people can't get their trophies uh, back into the United States in a lot of cases. And CITES animals specifically, like my Bontabuck, it's still sitting over in storage in South Africa. Can't get it here, which is absolutely ridiculous because they're not endangered. So anyway, how do the antis get an animal listed as a CITES species? Um, we'll take a look at that, and then we'll head to Europe, to the mountains of Spain, to hunt ibex. Uh, a trip that Corey recently took with his family, and uh, one that I think has got to be on the old bucket list, right? I, I don't really know a lot about Spain's hunting heritage, but uh, we'll dive into that coming up in just a bit. And for at the very least, you know, Spain's one of those places just for the food and wine that I think would be cool to visit. You throw in some mountain hunting, who in the hell doesn't want to do that? So that's coming up with Corey here in just a bit. And then we will wrap up today's broadcast by talking a little archery, specifically some innovative broadhead technology when Crimson Talon Broadhead's new owner, Dave Biddle, jumps on. He'll be here in studio today as he has revitalized Crimson Talon, a company that was very popular seven, eight years ago and uh, went belly up for whatever reason. He has since brought them back as the new owner. And the technology behind these Gen 2 Crimson Talons is absolutely fascinating because generally speaking, we steer our arrow shafts from the rear. That's what our fletching does. But Crimson Talons, due to the design, uh, the curved blades actually steer the arrow from the front so fascinating stuff uh, coming up here as we dive into a little archery discussion with dave biddle uh, let's do this actually since we're going to be talking crimson talons i've got a three pack we'll give away today and everyone's eligible to win all you have to do email the word blood trail that might be two words i don't know blood trail to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com because these broadheads are going to leave a devastating blood trail. No doubt about that. Um, email blood trail to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com and you are entered to win a three pack of the Crimson Talon broadheads. Also, don't forget our monthly photo contest are always going on. You can send in your best hunting, fishing, outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com and our 12 monthly winners from this year. We'll square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt a trophy axis deer or black buck with me out at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're joined by DU's chief scientist, Tom Mormon. We're talking all things greenheads next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Curl does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. 
This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. Run the river, catch a small mail, shoot a mallard as he flies south. Run my dog till I get that trophy for Southern Outdoors. That's the music of Matt Prater, Southern Outdoors, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate each and every one of you. Also want to thank Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, our longtime presenting sponsors. We're all set to talk a little waterfowl here this morning with Ducks Unlimited's chief scientist, Tom Mormon. But before we do that, this segment is proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and the Big Chingone. This is the blind I've got out at the Deer Lease. Literally put the wife... All three kids, myself, could have put Belle in there, too, if we wanted to bring the dog, but uh, shot a doe with the entire family in the Big Chingone last year. It's the perfect way to introduce youngsters into deer hunting, or hog hunting, for that matter, because, let's face it, no four-, five-, or six-year-old wants to sit there freezing their hiney off, getting rained on. No. You put them in the Big Chingone, you're warm, you're dry, you can even make a little noise. Yeah. Uh, so, check it out. It's the Big Chingone. You can find it, as well as All Seasons' entire line of blinds and feeders right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. With that being said, um, man, I've got I've got wing shooting on the brain. for I mean, dove season will be here before we know it, then early teal, resident Canada geese, and then waterfowl season right around the corner. And that's got me thinking about those greenheads that we all love to pursue. I saw some alarming stuff concerning Atlantic Flyway greenheads. And so joining us now to discuss what's going on there, it is my pleasure to welcome our good friend and Ducks Unlimited's chief scientist, Tom Mormon, back to the show. Hey, Cable. Thanks for having me back on. You know, always great to talk about waterfowl. Absolutely. And I uh, got a lot of good feedback on our last discussion on the barnacle goose and interesting goose species that nest high on these cliffs and uh, <laughs> hurls their or their young hurl themselves off these, you know, thousand-foot drop-offs is, is seemingly a certain death wish, but somehow they survive, and uh, a lot of people, I think, enjoyed that. Uh, so looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah, thanks. Uh, glad to hear people enjoyed that discussion. There's uh, a lot of interesting birds out there, and, <laughs> and barnacle geese certainly fit that bill. No doubt about that. Um, today I want to talk about uh, a situation on the Atlantic Flyway where uh, actually one of our followers alerted me to, and I think he was from Virginia, sent me their uh, waterfowl regulations for the 
2020 season, and Mallard's dropped all the way down to two birds. You could shoot one, only one of those being a hen. And so it got me thinking, I was like, man, have, uh, and I might have overreacted a little bit, thinking have anti-hunters infiltrated Virginia's uh, State Fish and Wildlife Agency? But, you know, in the Central Flyway, we're just a lot of times covered up in greenheads. And you look at their yeah. long-term average, Tom, and they're doing fine. I mean, what are there, 10, between 10 and 11 million um, uh, animals in the continental population. And so you think about that. Why right. in the world is the Atlantic Flyway struggling? Yeah, well, uh, the good news is it's not an anti-hunter movement. Right. And, well, yeah, and, I, and that was just what I saw for Virginia. And then I did yep. a little research. And I was like, okay, this is the entire flyway, so something's obviously yeah, going on. Yeah, so, so in North America, mallards are managed in three population segments. There's a western population that is mostly in the Pacific flyway states where it is a breeding population. And then there's the population you reference, for instance, that Texas hunters uh, will get to hunt here in a couple of months. That is the mid-continent population, the one that we traditionally think comes out of the prairie pothole region and the boreal forest. Mm -hmm. And then out east, there is an eastern population, and those birds breed in far eastern Canada and about 11 or 12 northeastern states. And what has happened uh, since about 1990, there has been a separate, actually two separate aerial surveys, one in eastern Canada and then one in those 13 or so northeastern states. And oddly, um, the, the survey from eastern Canada shows that part of the population being pretty stable, but the population in those northeastern states has declined rather significantly. Uh, it's down about 40% since 1990. Wow. Uh, and that represents somewhere in the neighborhood of about four to 500,000 birds. Now, so, you know, your audience can sort of put the context around this. You mentioned the, the mid-continent population being around 10 million, and that's correct. Hmm. That population is doing okay. Um, it's stable and well above long-term averages, all those kinds of things. But that little population there, a smaller population in the Northeast has declined. The causes of the decline are not clear, but the Fish and Wildlife Service, in consultation with the Atlantic Flyway states, has decided that the population decline is significant enough that they need to reduce bag limit. And so they cut the bag from four mallards, two hens, to two mallards, one hen. And that is in response to that decline in those northeastern states. Wow, okay. So only 400,000 birds in that uh, Atlantic Flyway area. Well, there was about a million birds in that uh, northeastern states population uh -huh. as of in, you know, in the early 90s. And it's been on about a 1% per year decline. And at present, it's, you know, I'm going to just ballpark it here because I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's probably around a half a million, 600,000. Okay. And so they got about 400,000 missing mallards, and causes aren't clear. You know, the harvest rates don't appear to have changed hmm. um, over that time. The age ratios don't show much difference over that time. And quite frankly, the habitat doesn't signal much over that time, but obviously the birds aren't there. And so 
a collection of Fish and Wildlife Service and state agencies in the Atlantic Byway are studying, you know, trying to get at causation. Uh, a colleague of mine at State University of New York is going to look into some research on the issue as well. And hopefully we can figure out those folks to sort this out and turn that population around and get uh, hunters back to the opportunities there they enjoy with mallards out there. Let me ask you this. Are other species showing similar decline? No, not really. In the huh. Atlantic flyway. Because you think about a mallard, Tom, and you think probably the hardiest, most prolific, yeah. I mean, obviously the most prolific duck that we have in North America. And I didn't yeah. really know that they were, I didn't know they could be limited, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they can by really big scale droughts and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. We see that, of course, with such sure. populations. Um, I always tell people that I think mallards are probably going to out-survive humans, mm-hmm. and they're they're that adaptable. But in this case, something's up, and so they're trying to sort it out. Uh, one of the things that they did, which I thought was, I know that hunters are really frustrated out there because of this bag limit cut. Mallards are really important to their bag limit. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionally, that population, their, their number of days or season lengths in limits were based on the plight of the mallard population. And so they did have the wisdom to split that out. And now mallards will be managed individually like black ducks have been for years. And what that means is now the season length is predicated on the four other most commonly harvested species out there, which I think are wood duck, green winged teal, ringneck ducks, and maybe common golden eyes. Hmm. And so at least they were able to do that and keep their season at 60 days, uh, albeit they have the frustration of only being able to shoot two mallards. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Is there any school of thought to these mallards migrating west, maybe a little bit more so than, you know, previously in history? No. um, You know, one of the things... In a, in a separate discussion about non-breeding waterfowl, one of the things we're discussing is increasing banding post-season to get a better understanding of post-season waterfowl movement and distribution. Hmm. But generally speaking, we don't see those eastern mallards moving west. Okay. Um, the, that's, you know, the, the broad cut at a western, mid-continent, and eastern population is because they are pretty geographically isolated populations. It's not 100%, but it's it's up there. Hmm. And so from the Great Lakes over to Alberta, those birds are coming down through the Mississippi and Central Flyway predominantly. And then birds that are, are born and raised in eastern Canada and eastern northeastern U.S. pretty much sticking to the Atlantic Flyway and likewise, you get the same effect out west, although you do get a little crossover from uh, birds in Alberta heading over to the Pacific Coast. Yeah. Well, you know, Texans complain because it seems like, depending on how cold it gets, less mallards show up every year, and people want to say, oh, they're short-stopping them in Kansas and Nebraska and all this other stuff. Now, I think if we just get a cold year, we, we get the mallards, you know? that's. Uh, yeah. Um, well, that's one of the things... You know, we're actually a collection of us, state agencies, and I'm involved a little bit in this, is taking a look at some of the the distribution data on wintering waterfowl. Mm-hmm. One of the states that has a pretty good survey is Texas. 
And what you see there is a shift upwards from the coast into uh, the rolling plains, oaks and prairies, some of that panhandle country. And so you see a lot of birds moving up there. And then this is a modeling, you know, what I'm about to talk about is a modeling paper that was done on uh, behalf of the Five Lakes Joint Venture, which is basically the Texas panhandle up to uh, Nebraska. Hmm. And they specifically looked, they looked at a bunch of shorebirds, but they looked at mallards and pintails and projected what might happen relative to increasing winter temperatures over time. And and it shows pretty clearly that one, they would expect mallards to shift north up into Kansas, Nebraska. And in fact, more pintails shifted north, but it was actually from the coast up into the panhandle of Texas. And so what you got to understand about these birds is, you know, they're adapted to stay, especially mallards and pintails. They're really adapted to stay as far north as they can. And without going into a great bunch of, you know, evolutionary and ecological detail, the advantage of migration is a cost and benefit. And the shorter distance you can migrate, the less probability you have of getting running into some form of mortality, usually sometimes a hunter, sometimes a hawk, doesn't really matter. So staying closer is good, but it also enables that duck to return, especially the female, to return sooner to the prairies. Mm -hmm. And we know that the birds that get to the prairies first tend to be the most successful and most productive in terms of producing the fall flight. So there's some drivers in here and some complicated biology that, that makes it a little bit uncertain as to what the future might bring relative to non-breeding distribution. End of the day, however, you're correct. If we still get a decent winter weather event, you will get birds pushed out of those areas. And I mean, like we can still shoot five mallards in the central flyway, and I, I'm not sure what the Mississippi flyway is, um, but I know that we're four. Okay, four. Their yep. regulations haven't been affected this season, so. Uh, no, um, this is all. You know, this bag limit reduction is all based on Atlantic Flyway and based on that uh, collection of production birds in northeastern U.S. Hmm. Hmm. What about um, an, a, a bird that you and I have discussed a couple times, <clears throat> a couple times over the years, the gadwall. And on those, you know, winters where we don't get the really cold weather, the gadwall seems to really save a lot of Texas um, and even folks in Oklahoma, it, it seems to save a lot of seasons for us. And they're yeah. they're long term, um, they're they're doing they're, they're way over their long term average. And it seems like the last five or six years, uh, their numbers have just continued to just blow up. Right. Yeah, and that's where this gets. You know, as I said, this gets a little bit complicated. Those populations, gadwall, shovelers, uh, blue winged teal, probably the best three examples are doing really well. And people say, well, you know, we don't see see these mallards or these pintails as much as we used to, but we still have gadwalls. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, one of the things that we often, we don't communicate to people and probably people don't think about is all the ducks are different in their foraging adaptations and foraging ecology. So if you stop and think about gadwalls, shovelers, and blue wings, they would be all what we would call wetland obligates, meaning they always feed in wetlands, in water. Mm-hmm. Then you think about some of these other birds, green wings, wood ducks, mallards, and pintails. We would call them facultative, meaning, yeah, sometimes they're feeding in wetlands, but lots of times we see feeding in uplands, especially ag fields. 
So if you put yourself as a gadwall sitting in Saskatchewan and you have to feed on aquatic vegetation in open water, come about October, you really can't take the chance of sticking around very much longer because mm-hmm. there's a very high probability that water's going to freeze and your food supply is cut off. Mm-hmm. So you see blue wings, shovelers, and uh, gadwalls get out of there pretty predictably uh, and pretty early. Then you see things like mallards and pintails. Well, pintails are a little bit of a different animal, but uh, mallards especially hang back, and that's because they can hang on until the very end. In fact, they can hang on even if there's frozen water as long as there's not snow cover. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know, ultimately you need some snow cover to bump those guys out of there and really cover up all the, not only the wetland food but the, the waste agricultural grain that's out in the fields. And so there are some differences in foraging ecology that that are the reason some people see some species and not others in any given year. Okay. Well, that all makes sense because, I mean, I don't want to say that I've ever shot one because I, I can't recall if I have. But if you've never been on an early teal hunt where a shoveler accidentally gets shot, you know, uh, I don't, you probably haven't been teal hunting very much. Uh, and, and I, you know, you see these shovelers. I know for a fact, one time last year, I was hunting with Kent Cartridge and Mossberg, and there's literally a group of 20 blue-winged teal, and there's one shoveler in the middle of them. You know? That happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they're they're only just a slightly bigger than you know, a blue-winger. They're a relatively small puddle duck. Yeah. Blue-wings uh, are the vanguard, for sure, of migration. They bolt lots of times. In fact, there's probably, where are we here, August 13th. I always tell people August 15th in the Mississippi Valley, you should be able to find a blue-winged teal. Mm-hmm. And shortly thereafter, down on the Gulf Coast, you'll find them. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they're they're showing up now, and they'll hopefully peak during yeah. teal season. But we'll we'll see about that. Yeah. And then they're followed pretty quickly. You know, you see in October, after teal season's over, you start to see gadwalls, uh, pintails, and shovelers start to show up. And then, you know, after that, it's typically green wings and mallards and geese. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely a sort of a chronology that's a little bit based on species, and most of that simply relates to their feeding adaptation and foraging ecology. I have one other question for you. I find this interesting. So how many how many gadwalls make up our mid-continent population? Well, that is a good question. I uh, don't have it in front of me. Well, is it like they aren't four million, six million, you know, somewhere. Yeah, it's a little higher than that. I think I'd have to pull the uh, breeding population survey, which I don't have. Right well, it's, okay. it's significant. Let's just in say the ballpark. You know, yeah, six, it's going to be seven. in the ballpark of six, seven million. Okay. So I've always wondered this question: Why are we like legally allowed to shoot six gadwall, six widgeon, six ringwing teal, but we can only shoot five mallards? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in when we part, know that there's when that we know that there's more mallards than there are any of those other species, I just and I don't have a problem with it. You know, I've just always been like, well, this doesn't really add up statistically. Yeah, well, it's it is a little bit complicated, and it's kind of based on two things. One is mallards take the brunt of waterfowl harvest. Everybody wants to shoot mallards, and so traditionally they're the number one bird in the bag in for sure the Mississippi Flyway and probably the central flyway, although I'd have to go look. Mm -hmm. And so just by sheer numbers, hunters select for mallards. And so you have to 
the Fish and Wildlife Service, for that reason, has a par- uh, carefully constructed model based on you know years and years of harvest data, and they try to to match that harvest bag limit with factors like that. Okay. Um, mallards, fortunately, are also pretty productive. They're good at re-nesting, and so they can sustain a pretty heavy harvest. Gadwalls and blue wings are also really good at that, but the overall harvest rate on those species is quite a bit lower. And uh, so, well, what you've just explained is, I mean, exactly what you you see in any duck blind. If if there's mallards around, okay, boys, we're only shooting green today, you know. That's right. <laughs> and, well, that's oh, right. it's gadwalls. Let them go. Let them go. You know, wait. We're that's waiting right. on greenheads. Don't shoot a hen. That's right. Yeah, that is so, that is a common thing. Yeah, and you know, and hunters are also generally speaking pretty good about trying to select greenheads over hens mm-hmm. and to make a pretty straight oh, shot. You, you don't want to be things. the guy that shot the hen on a straight greenhead shoot. That's right. You know, and so, talk about and that's, you know, nut kicking. <laughs> so, so all those things sort of work out, and you know, it gets. Uh, and again, there are some differences among species and how productive they are. Pintails are not good re-nesters. Mm-hmm. And so, and their population has struggled a bit in recent years. And so our limit has bounced back and forth between one and two recently. And that's why they're just, they're not a productive segment. They're not a productive species. Mm-hmm. They're long lived. They'll forego years that are dry. They won't even nest and all kinds of odd things. And so it just makes them different and you know hunters lots of times i think all ducks are the same and actually there's quite a bit of difference among species hmm. okay well that, that's kind of uh, what i assumed would be the answer and but i just like you know people always ask questions well, why you know why we have so many mallards why well it's because we all want to shoot mallards <laughs> so yeah that makes total sense um well let's wrap this up with what what have you been up to here in the last few weeks as far as your job as a DU's chief um, waterfowl biologist? Well, um, lots of different things. Um, my job has all kinds of uh, interesting twists and turns, but in general, uh, DU has just revived, or re- I'm sorry, revised our international conservation plan. It's something we do about every five years. Mm-hmm. So we just wrap that up about June and then the first thing we do when we get done is sit down with it and start thinking about the next iteration. Um, we're adding some some information on long-term or horizontal threats to waterfowl conservation. Um, you know, some of the things that are 5, 10, 10 years out on the horizon. Uh, I was just up to our Great Plains office uh, to speak to them on a couple of different topics. And in a week or so, I will head to Winnipeg. The North American Duck Symposium will be happening. Hmm. Uh, that happens every three years. All the waterfall scientists, in, or most of them anyway, in North America, get together and have a big powwow about all the recent science that has been done over the past three years and have lots of good discussions about some of the things we just talked about. Okay. Well, interesting stuff as always. Uh, Tom, thanks for jumping on. Let me pick your brain and, and get into the root of the uh, Atlantic Flyway reduction in the mallard limit for the upcoming season. And a lot of people were looking for answers, and we appreciate you giving them to us. Yep, we understand that folks are frustrated, and I know that the Fish and Wildlife Service in the states over in the Atlantic are pretty frustrated too. Everybody wants to find a solution. So let's see if we can figure it out.
Get those All right. Mallards back in the sky. No doubt about it. Well, we appreciate it, Tom. Thanks again. All right, man. Good talking to you. All right. Tom Mormon, our good friend, chief scientist for Ducks Unlimited. Uh, so there you have the answers uh, regarding the Atlantic Flyway Mallard situation. Not looking very good, surprisingly, since mallards are doing so well uh, across the board in every other flyway. Uh, that segment, by the way, was proudly brought to you by the new Pulsar Thermion. If you haven't had a chance to play around with this rifle scope, you need to check it out. Unlike every other uh, thermal scope out there, the Thermion actually mounts with 30 millimeter rings. So perfect for all the bolt gun folks out there. It's still got all the great features that you expect from Pulsar, plus some new bells and whistles. Uh, you can find it at PulsarNV.com and use that promo code LONESTAR to save 20% off your order. And when you're talking about a $1,000, you know, a couple thousand dollar piece of equipment, 20% is a lot of money. Check it out, PulsarNV.com. Uh, we will be right back with our good friend and Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason. He's had some fascinating trips to Africa and uh, hunting in Spain as well here recently. We'll discuss next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But everybody loves me. Everybody loves me. Everybody loves me for a little while. Hi, I'm Luke Anderson, the owner of Colt Construction. I'm also a proud outdoorsman and proud to support the Lone Star Outdoor Show. With roots dating back generations of hard work and the outdoors, I take pride in serving the citizens of the Lone Star State. There are tons of so-called roofing contractors in North Texas, but having a qualified, experienced, trustworthy one to deal with is few and far between. We want to be your one-stop shop to leave it better than we found it and have a relationship that goes past just improving your home or business. We run on three main principles, quality, because quality comes with a price. We want to do it right the first time and use the best materials. Integrity, because you want to know the true condition of your home or business. And I'm going to be honest and tell you exactly what I think. Grit, because I've swung the hammer. Bottom to top, I've done the labor. I know how the system works. We specialize in many different systems, including metal, clay tile, flat roofing, and good old shingles. You can find us at coltbuilds.com, our Facebook page, or our phone number is 817-789-7588. Colt Construction, dirty hands, clean money, your blue-collar guy to call. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Every day I wake up knowing it could be my last. I ain't here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. So bring on the sunshine to hell with 
King George for you here for a good time. Bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you so much for tuning in today as we've got some interesting stuff to get into, which we will tackle momentarily when our Dallas Safari Club executive director, Corey Mason, makes his return to the broadcast. He has recently returned from a few uh, international trips, and we'll find out what he's been up to here momentarily. But first, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue, where you can stop in after the hunt or if you're just getting off the lake. It doesn't matter what time of day because they're open for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. That's right. And grab a cold Lone Star while you're at it. Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. And uh, now, without further ado, he is an old friend of the show, dating back to his time with Texas Parks and Wildlife, to his current position at the helm of Dallas Safari Club. And to say that Corey Mason is well-versed in wildlife management and conservation is a gross understatement. It's my pleasure to welcome Corey back to the broadcast. Thank you, Cable. It's great to be with you. It is my pleasure as always. So, you have been a busy man of late. Uh, we ran into each other at the, uh, I think it was the June DSE monthly meeting, and you were uh, basically had a bunch of trips back to back. I do want to talk about your Spain hunt that you went on with your family, but first, let's hit on the conservation uh, issues here. Uh, I know you just returned from Africa, and uh, there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately of, of certain countries and you know, specifically dealing with elephants and countries that have been closed to hunting. Um, tell us a little bit about what you were doing there, and, and if it's something that you can't go into a lot of detail about, we understand that. But just give us a brief overview. You bet. So I uh, did have the privilege of just returning from uh, two weeks in Africa, uh, really spending time in a particular country that's looking to uh, to open reopen hunting. Uh, and for a number of reasons. Number one, for the return to rural communities and associated livelihoods that comes with sustainable, well-regulated hunting to rural people. Secondarily, uh, understanding that hunting is a valuable conservation tool. Uh, I'm very proud to report that the ministries and, and government officials understand that concept profoundly there in Africa. Uh, but unfortunately, we have what I often refer to as Western arrogance, the influence of essentially the first world, Europe and America, mm -hmm. uh, that are willing. Uh, they feel like they're entitled to essentially give their belief system to the whole world and essentially tell them that's how they should live. Uh, so um, the African countries oftentimes are under siege from people that don't understand what it's like to live with these animals and certainly to coexist with them and to try to manage them. And so they're always under those attacks. And so the point of our trip was to go and offer the, the abundant resources of DSC in the sense of uh, providing access to our conservation outlets, understanding of development of hunting markets, conservation forums and platforms, as well as the resources that we can provide in the sense of conservation grants, needed research as well, and then ultimately access to, uh, to the markets that we provide access to. So we had an extremely productive time meeting with everyone from rural communities uh, to land boards, to wildlife officials and government officials as well. And so really took that message of international support from the conservation community and from the hunting community to them. So they're extremely grateful, and I think some really good things to come. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. You know, this this kind of sparked a, something that I hit on a couple of weeks ago. It made me think about it again, and that's uh, 
anthropomorphism, and we've always called it, you and I basically have called it the uh, Disneyfication of, of wildlife. Um, yeah. I did a segment on that after taking my kids to see the new Lion King. And, and don't get me wrong, I think people misinterpreted what I said when I made you know posts on social media that I was just bashing the Lion King. You know, I love the Lion King. I liked it in 94 when I was 13. I liked it in 2019 <laughs> when I was 37. It was, it was entertaining. Sure. It was a good movie. Um, but these people are like, a lot of people are like, I can't get, I can't get down on this. I don't agree. How could this, how could anthropomorphism really affect us as hunters? And I said, well, look at, um, anti-hunters, look at animal rights activists, look at vegans. These are all learned behaviors, Corey. They didn't, people are not born vegan. They're not born animal rights activists and they're sure as hell not born anti-hunters. So somewhere in society, they're learning to humanize wildlife. And I just think it's, you know, almost ludicrous for people not to realize that anthropomorphism is a major factor. It's something that we're dealing with as a hunting community every day. That's exactly right. You know, it's very easy for us to to say, I don't even understand how people can get there. Uh, and, and in concept, I agree with that. But in practice, I will also remind uh, the person that has the bird dog, I would challenge the fact that I suspect that man or woman probably gave that bird dog a name, mm-hmm. right? And so we have a tendency towards treating certain animals a certain way and other animals a different way. Associated with that is we have a continually uh, a, a population base, if you will, that is becoming less and less connected to the land. So they don't understand what the relationship of a farmer is like or a rancher that is like that cares for his life or his livestock. But very quickly at the same time understands that they are there to provide meat and substance and financial return for the management for him and his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that understanding and that relationship is, is further and further removed. And clearly, much further removed than that is the relationship of urban people, generally speaking, those that are at least anti-hunters, and the understanding of our relationship with hunting as a community. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, farmers. I saw last week a Facebook page dedicated. It was called uh, like Working Cattle Dogs of America or something like that. Facebook deleted this this group because they called it animal uh, animal cruelty because they were using the dogs to herd cattle. Can you believe that? It's unbelievable. <laughs> Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, just uh, that's what these. It's like my lab. My, you know, what my lab loves to do duck hunt. You know what what uh, uh, border collies love to do herd cattle. You know, that's right. They live for it. That's what they. That that's exactly what they know what to do. They are <laughs> yeah. genetically programmed to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, wh- wh- why I brought up the anthropomorphism again is I wanted to ask you, do you think that that is relevant in the third world when we're talking about Africa? I just don't know if if they're, they're probably not watching these Disney movies, and I wonder if that um, is something that is really even relevant in their world. You know, that's a great question, Cable, and I think on the North American side, 100%, again, because people's relationship with animals can be influenced, like you say, by what they see or what they are told, because very, you know, unfortunately, all too often, their pers- their relationship is not personal in nature. Mm-hmm. But when you go to, to Africa, which, again, I just returned from, and you look at something like Cecil the Lion that was taken a few years ago, uh, and their comments associated with that or any other leopard or lion or elephant that threatens their existence as rural people on a personal level, they don't name an animal by a personal name. Mm-hmm. A lion is a lion is a lion to them. And some of the responses from the rural Zimbabweans associated with that was America cries at the loss of Cecil, whether we celebrate the loss of something that could take a family member and a livestock. You know, mm-hmm. so. It is not something that is paralleled in 
across the African continent. They could absolutely care less. They coexist with wildlife where they have to, where they don't have to. In many cases, particularly these essentially megafauna, lion, leopard, elephant, if they can't coexist with them because of you know depredation associated with livestock and or farming practices, maize or wherever they have as a crop, they kill them. Mm-hmm. It's that mm-hmm. simple. I, I was talking with my PH, Carl Van Seel, after our rhino um, bite dart hunt that we did in um, South Africa. And I said, you, you know, it's so sad that it's come to this for the rhino. You know, that was my what I took away from that experience, that it was necessary, but it was also kind of, it tugs at your heartstrings to be that close to this magnificent prehistoric animal and realize that they're on the brink of being wiped off the face of this earth. And so my question is, how do the African people not, how do they not step up and want to try to save it, right? Well, he told me rhinos don't have a vote. These people are just worried about where their next meal is going to come from. Are they going to have clothes to put on their kids' backs, you know? They don't care about the rhino, and the politicians don't care about the rhino because the rhino doesn't get a vote. So yep. if it's not for you know sustainable use, hunting or using the resource, oh, you know the rhino is not going to be here. And uh, and that's that's what people I think fail to realize is that yeah, um, like you said, they're just worried about their next meal, and that's really all they're concerned about, or protecting their cattle from the lion. That's right. So we met with a group of community leaders associated with the first morning that we were there in Africa. And what we heard from these community leaders when they were looking to build this hunting program was the fact that, uh, number one, they are relying on them for their uh, financial existence. And obviously, the tertiary benefits that come from that as well, community development, water development, all those kind of things that we're aware of. But the response of a very large and prominent cattle rancher was, I do not want lion or leopard on my property. I'll kill every one of them. That was the response. Uh, and he said, give me a reason that I should coexist and sacrifice a cow that's worth hundreds of dollars per to exist with lions. What does a lion bring me? And then that conversation turned into your point and the fact that, well, if you were financially incentivized to coexist with that lion in the sense of some return from a sustainable hunting program that exists and your return is amplified far more than the value of that cow, he said, then I'm willing to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. In the absence of that, I don't want one of them on my property. I don't blame the guy, you know, I, I, you know, yep. I absolutely don't. Um, okay, well, that's interesting. You mentioned where you were as far as visiting with some leadership in a country that's thinking about reopening hunting. Are there any other countries that are maybe leaning in that same direction? You know, we have conversations with a number of countries in Africa as well as around the world. You know, we work with folks from Tajikistan and Asia for their community-based independent wildlife conservation programs assuring that sustainable hunting programs that benefits rural people, which is really has to be the role in Africa specifically. And most recently, we had a delegation here that uh, the foundation entertained in my absence when I was on another trip associated with a Kenyan delegation. Hmm. Now, you're probably likely aware that Kenya stopped hunting years and years ago. In the 70s. And uh, as a result of that, their elephant population is a fraction of what it was because, again, there's no incentive for local people to manage that resource. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but nonetheless, the point is, is we're having those conversations with these, with these countries, wildlife officials around the world. Many people are having some sort of uh, introspective looks at the value of what hunting does provide. Again, well-developed, sustainable hunting programs and the value they provide back to wildlife conservation as well as rural people. So I think we will continue to see those 
that can objectively look across their country and the needs of their people and say, for those that are not doing it now, that we need to continue to look at this and possibly open an exploratory stance, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's it's great to hear Kenya in in a sentence you know associated with a possible hunting opportunity. So that's and just uh, a willingness to at least have the conversation. And you know they weren't here for that, uh, but then it turned into a conversation that was facilitated into um, you know hey here's some of the benefits, realizing that it would take years probably to turn that ship if they chose to do that. Yeah. But it doesn't start without without a conversation that's well informed. Well it's not just elephants. When you talk about Kenya, I think I've read, you know, that their overall wildlife population is down seventy percent from the time that they closed hunting. That's right. They have no anti poaching. They have no incentive for management at this point. Yeah. So yeah. well shifting gears here, um I know you're going to CITES um, coming up here, I think this this week actually, and I'll let you talk a little bit about that. We've talked about CITES in the past because I'm still bitter about my Bontabuck that's still sitting in South Africa <laughs> that I can't get back, and I know there's a lot of folks um, in other places that uh, even Americans like, can't get a polar bear back from uh, Canada or um, you know can't get a lion back from Africa or whatever the case is. There's tons and tons of folks out there just like myself, uh, but for the uh, for the people who are not familiar with CITES, talk a little bit about that and then follow up with uh, what what this meeting is is going to entail. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. So uh, we will be leaving. Uh, I leave this week, and we'll be at the CITES convention, what they call the COP, the Convention of Parties, which occurs every three years. This is COP eighteen, um, and there will be 180 plus countries represented there from around the world. A lot of NGOs that are there. We are now a qualified international observer, so DSC will be there providing input, providing statements uh, in the room for all of these discussions. And really the importance of that for just to speak to wildlife conservation first at the global level and then to maybe step into hunting is really the purpose of CITES is really to to look at the, the global trade conservation of threatened and endangered species at a global level. CITES is really kind of the first cut associated with the ability to to manage these species. Manage can be by take, manage can be by trade, whatever it may be. Obviously, this is extremely well regulated. And, you know, species such as elephant clearly typically jump high on the list, but there are species there from, you know, species of tree, wood specifically from around the world and all different kinds of species that will be discussed there from, you know, the leading experts in the world science, academics, et cetera, NGOs that have very vested interest uh, in the conservation of these species. Are politicians permitted to be a part of this, Corey? Uh, Yes and no. There will be representatives from many countries that will be there. Uh, And so uh, they will be elected officials, some of them appointed officials as well. Uh, But uh, a number of officials from uh, from the African governments will be there as well, as well as community leaders and representatives as well, because of the vested and personal interest they have in the outcomes of the CITES forum. Okay. Um, yeah, and I was and, asking uh, that specifically because, you know, we've we've seen Congressman Grijalva from Arizona in the news a lot lately. And I think one of his goals and goals of the anti-hunting faction is to increase the number of animals on CITES, on the CITES list. And the reason for that is that it makes, it makes, it just makes hunters have to go through more headaches, more hoops. Um, and, and, Ultimately, I mean, obviously, they want to get rid of hunting altogether, and the more cumbersome you make it for us, you know, their thinking is, well, we're just going to go away. So I didn't know if someone like him, uh, you know, a, a 
an American politician would be uh, allowed to be a part of that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So uh, I, I doubt any American uh, politicians will be there, but there will be representatives from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, and those kinds of representatives will be there. Uh, some of the other countries around the world will send, again, fairly high-ranking officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. There will be some potentially some presidents from some African countries that will be in attendance, <clears throat> and certainly some members of their cabinets will be there. Uh, one of the important things as well that does provide the other side of weight to the room is the fact that there will be a significant number of specifically anti-hunting organizations that will be there, mm-hmm. and they will present information, uh, and much of it will not be based on fact. Much of it will be contrived for the sole purpose of absolutely disillusion, uh, and that's what we will be there to counter-argument, provide information around, uh, because they will do whatever they can to essentially, at the risk of the conservation of the species, provide information that results in anything that's associated with hunting of that species, even mm-hmm. if the hunting of that species has clearly and demonstratedly shown that it results in the conservation of the species. Right, right. And so, it, obviously, these, these folks high-five every time an, uh, another species gets added to the CITES list. Unfortunately, they, yeah. they will many times. Yeah. I mean, it, and it, at the detriment of the species sometimes. Sure, sure. And I, I think uh, giraffe is like one of the ones that they're really targeting right now. That's correct. That will be uh, an item of significant discussion. Okay. Fascinating stuff on that front. Okay, so that's taking place this week. We're so glad that DSC has a presence there to debunk all of the uh, disillusion that's going to be put out there by the anti-hunting community, um, certainly. Let's do this, uh, Corey. Let's take a quick break. I want to come back and uh, hear about your family's trip to Spain. That sounds great. Excellent. And that segment brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. With locations in Marion, Texas, and San Antonio, Josh and Becky Gunther have been taking care of all of my taxidermy needs for going on about a decade. It's a long freaking time. They answer the phone when I call. They do amazing work and offer fast turnaround time. All things that I have not experienced previously with other taxidermists. So, do what I do. Let Rustic Reminders take care of your next trophy mount. And you can find them at GR, the number 8 mounts.com we'll be right back with more from dsc's executive director Corey mason on the lone star outdoor show hey y'all chris letzinger online sales manager at cinnamon creek ranch here reminding you we're not your typical archery club we're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. The granddaddy of all hunting shows returns this August to Houston, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. The 2019 Hunters Extravaganza. We'll have all the latest in hunting gadgets and gear. Buy direct from the manufacturers and save. Bring the kids and see Gator Country's huge alligators. Last season's bucks from our annual deer contest. Live rattlesnakes. And enter our incredible locked and loaded giveaway. The 2019 Hunters Extravaganza. Returning this August to Houston, Fort Worth, and San Antonio. For details and tickets, visit huntersextravaganza.com. If you knew the truth about me, baby, don't know where in hell you stay.
Show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Thank you guys and gals for being here. Uh, I'm your host, Cable Smith, and it is the highlight of my week to be here talking outdoors with you. So thanks for dropping in today as we are still visiting with Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason. About to head over to Europe and do some mountain hunting. Um, we'll get into that in just a second. But first, this segment of the show proudly brought to you by First Light and their Sawtooth Hybrid Jacket. Let me tell you this. If I had one First Light piece that I recommend you check out, it would be the Sawtooth Hybrid. It's extremely versatile, whether you are hunting elk early season, uh, you put it on when it's cool in the morning, uh, take it off midday, throw it in your pack, put it back on in the evening, but it is breathable. It's got a hood, dries quickly if you do sweat in it, and across the board, uh, hell, I've even used it as a pillow many times, <laughs> but you can check it out at firstlight.com. It's the Sawtooth Hybrid Jacket available in both First Light Fusion and Cypher. First Light, go further, stay longer. All right, uh, well, with that being said, Let's get back into it here with Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. Certainly appreciate it, Corey. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, so a place that is becoming more more alluring to me as far as wanting to go to Europe and hunt is Spain. Um, people, I don't think, associate Spain with mountains and um, sheep. Or are they goats? Ibex are probably goats, actually. Um, but... It is. They do have a rich hunting heritage there. Uh, they have great wine as well, and I think lots of beautiful sights to see. So it might be a place that, you know, you take the wife or the family. Um, was this your first time hunting in Spain? It was. It was my first time to uh, to hunt there. It was wonderful experience. Talk a little bit about their their heritage as outdoorsmen uh, in Spain. Absolutely. So so our trip started about uh, two years ago and having a conversation with some Spanish representatives that really did talk about that culture and their tradition and what they essentially offer to the outdoorsmen uh, that started at the DSC convention. Mm-hmm. And my family booked, booked a hunt with them. Um, and upon getting there, I'll tell you what, it was one of the most beautiful countryside that we've seen. Like you mentioned, essentially what would much of it be akin to like sheep country for those that are hunters that would understand that. Uh-huh. Um, but very steeped in tradition and one of the things that even I didn't quite understand and have a better understanding of now is Spain's tradition in wildlife conservation. I mean, when you look at one species that comes particularly to mind is a Greedos ibex. Um, and the family that we were hunting with is one of the families that had a significant footprint on the recovery of the entire species across the Greedos Mountains from essentially a handful of ibex left to what is now this great conservation success story with these villages relying upon hunters coming in and the revenue associated with that further incentivizing the management of these species. So they've done a tremendous job to manage their wildlife. They're very proud of that, as they should be. Huh. Fascinating. Well, geographically speaking, I'm not familiar with Spain. I've been to Europe one time, and that was to eat some uh, fish and chips at the London Heathrow Airport on my way to South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> so my yep. experience in, in, in Europe is uh, pretty much non-existent. 
Um, but where, you know, what part of Spain are you hunting in? Yeah, so we flew into Madrid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were received there, uh, spent the night there, and then we actually went because the, the two weeks that we were there happened to be the time. Of course, you planned the trip two years in advance, but it happened to be the same time of this huge heat wave that was going across all of Europe. Uh, daytime ambient temperatures were over 100 degrees, wow. <laughs> so it sort of changed where we were going to hunt. Um, and so we went far north. We started hunting Ibex and the Gritos Mountains, but the temperature actually continued to force us to hunt Roebuck and Mufalon further north than where we had originally planned to hunt. Uh, the hunting was spectacular regardless of where we went, uh, but we were in the far northern part of Spain um, and, in fact, spent some time on the coast as close as we were to the, the northern part. But, uh, yeah, just a tremendous experience. And I'm sure that the uh, the food and beverages were on, you know, on point as well. They were great. So we hunted for six days, essentially. Uh-huh. Uh, started hunting Ibex. Uh, my wife, my 10-year-old daughter were on the mountain with me, were beside me whenever I took my Ibex, uh, which was which was really special as a family. Um, and uh, but, but every evening, of course, we would come back to the, to the lodge there. The Hacienda had tremendous food, uh, many local, local foods as well. Lots of seafood. Oh yeah. Um, and then, and then lamb as well. And, and, uh, yeah, it was tremendous. Uh, and then after we hunted, uh, we took Roe and we took Mufalon as well. Then we went back to the Madrid area and spent a few days there, Toledo, Segovia as well. And, and, uh, really enjoyed the local wines, the cathedrals, the the, the castles and the palaces and those kinds of things, and just really sort of soaked it up historically as well as culturally. Wow, that sounds like an amazing trip. Next time we go, let's uh, run with the bulls. Yeah, I'll let you do that. I'll take pictures of that. <laughs> uh, I do want to hit more on the hunt, on the ibex hunt. Yeah. How close do you? How close are you able to get to these as you're as you're spotting and stalking in the mountains and? Uh, what caliber what caliber rifle are you using? You bet. So I took my trusty 300 Win Mag. I'm just the biggest fan in the world of that caliber because it's such a universal weapon, uh, shooting 200 grain bullets. Uh, and I took my Ibex. It's uh, just a little over 300 yards. Uh, much of the Ibex country, straight up or straight down. Um, and you could get really close in some cases, and, but in many cases, just because of the topography, it just simply doesn't allow uh, to get overly close again if you're up or down. Mm-hmm. Uh, making a move on those ibex, so I got within a little over 300 yards. Uh, they're very strong animals. Obviously, they're built unbelievably strong and sturdy. Uh, but you know, well placed bullet and got him on the ground very quickly. And then, what was the recovery like? Did uh, did he end up in a place that was easy to access, or uh... he he actually did. We were able to get to him pretty easily, uh, and so we just kind of worked our way through the rocks and and got up there to him. And uh, of course, by then it was. Um, you know, by the time we got him and took proper care of him and got everything packed up and all of that to get off the mountain, it was dark. So we had a pretty good stretch out off, off the mountains there in the dark and, and, uh, which was, which is a little bit exciting and fun for my daughter. And <laughs> <laughs> by the time we got back though, cause it was, uh, I don't know, it was probably one or two in the morning before we got off the mountain. Oh, wow. And you mentioned your daughter, um, how old is she? She's 10. And did she get any trigger time on this trip? Well, she she did not. We had planned that she had the opportunity, uh-huh. uh, and because of where we were hunting, sort of the rigorousness of it, she was there with us. Uh, that little girl, to give her all the credit in the world, she was on the side of the mountain when we were hunting. Obviously, again, ibex and where we hunted roe deer, which was the country in which Shamwal lived in. So it was very rugged, very oh, wow. steep. Uh, but she was there with us, um, and just because of the sort of the difficulty of the sh- of the shooting, uh, you know. 
to, to make a shot. It was a bit technical here and there. And, uh, and so she, she was not to the point where we were able to, to get her on an animal. Uh, but nonetheless, she was right there with us. Would you, would you recommend this for a family, uh, as far as hunting Ibex in Spain? You know, it, it was a wonderful trip, and, and I would very strongly for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's some of the most beautiful country you can imagine. The welcome and the hospitality there, the Spanish people, was just second to none. Uh, typically, there's some really nice lodges or hotels that can be hunted out of. It depends on kind of where you go and how you're hunting. But then also the historical aspect of it is we're going up the mountain to, to go to, to camp. You know, we, we look down and you see a road built by the Romans that dated B.C., Wow. Uh, and to see those kinds of things and then to spend some time in castles and cathedrals that are, you know, 10th, 12th, 13th century old to experience those things. Uh, it, it was 100 percent a very family oriented experience. Hmm. OK. And just Spain's general perception, like the general population's um, stance on hunting, are they is it a lot like America where we have all these anti hunting groups or are they generally more open minded? You know, we, we received no issues associated with it. You know, I flew with my gun over there, had no issue at the airport. In fact, it was extremely easy. Uh, uh-huh. Of course, we were prepared, but nonetheless, it was well. We were received well. We had no issues at the airport all the way through transit, through town, and people asking what we were doing there and all those kinds of things. Like anywhere else, uh, you know, there's some opposition to it, some resentment to it. Um, but, you know, it's also a culture that um, has things like bullfights and things like that as part of their culture and tradition. So uh-huh. I think, generally speaking, there's probably a little bit more acceptance to it and understanding that it, it is something that people have done for you know, generations since people have existed on Earth, right? Yeah. They've hunted and gathered. That's what they've done to feed themselves. That's what we've done. Um, so, yeah, so we met no opposition. It was an extremely friendly place to go uh, and very welcoming. I do want to ask you this, too, because I'm always intrigued by when you talk to people about international travel, especially with firearms. What airline did you fly? We flew. That's a good question. Uh, we flew Delta over. Okay. Okay. See, I've had, like, I've flown Emirates to South Africa twice and American Airlines once. Emirates was far more accommodating um, as far as the firearm was concerned. Actually, you go to the airport, you're waiting in line. They're like, oh, you have a firearm. Let, let's go to the front of the line, sir. You know, and <laughs> American, it was like I was vilified for having a firearm. So um, I've faced different challenges with different airlines. And, and, and I think some of it relies down all the way down to the individual that's, that's checking you in, if you will, too. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a heck of a trip, Corey. Um, I look forward to seeing a picture of your Ibex. And we certainly enjoyed the conversation. It is always great to talk conservation with you and uh, uh, encourage folks to go to our website, biggame.org, if you're not a member of DSC already. Uh, we'd love to have you. And, and, you know, if you just want to check it out, hey, go to the website, see what we're all about. At the end of the day, we're about conservation, education, and protecting hunters' rights. That's perfect. I'd love to visit with you. So thanks for the support, Cable. Thanks for what you're doing and getting the word out. Well, hey, we'll do it again soon. Thank you much. Have a great day. Well, there he goes, Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason. Always great checking in with, uh, I call him our, our world traveler. He is literally, uh, thank God he got to go to Spain and, and hunt with his family there because it's life on the road, and a lot of that's international stuff for him. A month in and month out as he, well, as, I mean, it's his job description. He's got to have his fingers on the pulse of international hunting across the globe as uh, Dow Safari Club is instrumental in protecting our rights. So 
no rest for the weary on that front. Uh, always great to talk to Corey, though. That segment of the show was brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. You know what I absolutely love about DSC? There's so many great things, so many great people, but the fact that the club puts their money where their mouth is. They talk the talk and they walk the walk through donations and grants and their involvement with nonprofit wildlife conservation organizations. Seriously, check us out, biggame.org. Coming up next uh, with archery season right around the corner, we're going to talk some broadheads with Crimson Talons, Dave Biddle. Uh, they've got some absolutely amazing technology that create devastating wound channels. And I'm looking forward to hearing all about it next on the Lone Star Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them Cable sent you. Stella, we really love that rich O'Toole tune, Queen of the Misfits. I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Uh, thanks so much for being here, being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show today. Thanks to Dallas Safari Club as well. Uh, we are man, about to talk some broadheads, which gets my blood pumping since archery season is right around the corner. Uh, for a lot of folks, hell, um, archery antelope is already going on in a lot of the western states. September archery elk opens up uh, literally first of the month a lot of places as well I'll be heading to Montana on the 6th of September so uh, never bow hunted elk in Montana so we'll be able to uh, check that one off the bucket list whether I'm successful or not we shall see but uh, y'all know I'm a public land enthusiast and so we'll be going up there no guide no nothing just me a buddy our packs, and our bows, taking in all that the Montana wilderness has to offer. Hopefully, not the grizzly bears, though. <laughs> that would be ideal uh, if we didn't run into any of those brown bears. Anyway, in that vein, we are going to talk some broadheads today with Crimson Talon's Dave Biddle. But before we jump into that conversation, this segment is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land, that's the one thing they ain't making anymore, right? But we all want it, whether that's for hunting, fishing, recreating, running cattle, or just to get the hell out of the big city and out of the everyday rat race. But whatever your reason, Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. They've been helping their borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you, and you can find them at Lone Star agcredit.com. Well, uh, let's go ahead and bring on our final guest 
of today's presentation. He was nice enough to make the trek over to the studio. It is my pleasure to welcome Crimson Talons Broadheads Dave Biddle to the show. Pleased to be here, sir. Absolutely. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as far as a archer and also a hunter? Back in the day, I, I did, a, did a lot of hunting. I uh, never manufactured broadheads before. Right. Uh, that's, that's sort of the one thing I, I didn't do, which is you know brand new to, to my story. That's actually what I, I'm here to talk to you about today, sir. So, so, so what is your favorite thing to bow hunt for? Uh, <laughs> Whitetail. <laughs> <Right on. laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So like you said, uh, that passion for, for bow hunting led you to bring back Crimson Talon. Um, a company that went defunct about eight or nine years ago. Yes, sir. A reputable company, uh, absolutely great product. Um, to this day, I really don't know why they, they went under. I did talk to Scott Mackey, the, the CEO, uh -huh. um, and I knew about Crimson Talon Broadheads. I shot them in the past. I've been really quite pleased with them. Um, they were... You know, just all of a sudden they weren't around anymore, and and quite honestly, at the time I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. I yeah. mean, you know, companies come and go, right? Um, this past Christmas, um, uh, a friend of mine who uh, is a, uh, a fabricator um, who I've dealt with in the past over different things, um, we were just emailing Christmas pleasantries and. Uh, he just happened to pose the question, hey, would you consider bringing back Crimson Talon? Hmm. And honestly, I, I just, you know how one of those ideas, you never would have thought about it, but as soon as somebody puts it in your head, right. it seems like a good idea. Yeah. Um, so I made a couple of uh, quick calls and did a whole bunch of research. Um, called Scott Mackey and uh, said, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And he said, look, I'm out of the broadhead business, but... Uh, Bless you, I'm not going to stand in your way. You yeah. know, have a nice day. <laughs> um, second call was to the um, to the ATA, just uh -huh. to talk to them, to, to, to see what they thought. Yeah. Um, and that germ of an idea, five months later, we have the new and improved <laughs> Crimson Towel and Broadheads. Right. We're calling them the, the G2 for Generation 2. Okay. Um, same brilliant airfoil technology that was in the originals, um, but we brought them into 2019. Uh -huh. uh, Aircraft-grade aluminum ferrules, uh, thicker blades, sharper blades. Um, I have a particular love for A2 tool steel, which mm -hmm. may not mean much to anybody except if you start thinking, you know, chippers and jackhammers, that kind of thing, right? Okay. Um, and I just wanted something that was hard and tough and would go through just about anything. Uh -huh. um, as you know, I mean, one of the big problems uh, is if you hit bone, I mean, all shots aren't optimal. Um, you want it, you want your shot not to stop, <laughs> right? Um, you know, or have something break. Mm -hmm. um, A2 won't break. Mm -hmm. it'll, it'll just drill a hole and keep <laughs> right on moving, right? And You told me some of the product testing that you guys have been doing. Like um, shooting through, what was it? Uh, well, five, it, five gallon drums. Oh yeah, we we've been shooting through uh, steel drums, plywood, uh, everything we can find. Um, the uh, the kind folks from True Life Hunting Adventures have mm -hmm. been out shooting rams and hogs, and uh, 
we've been having complete pass-throughs. Uh, I think the furthest one ram got was about 30 yards before he piled up. Wow. Um, I've watched some of the hog videos, and they're just dropping them right on the spot. Yeah. Well, and our mutual so, friend, Chad Jones, he uh, I ran into him at the Trophy Hunter Show this weekend. Oh, yes, sir. And he said he uh, had gotten – you'd hooked him up with some of these, and he shot a hog last week, and it was devastating. Yeah. <laughs> a big hog, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the big thing about this is that, that – um, really, it's not the diameter of the blade. The airfoil technology causes the, 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 the blade to spin in flight. And that spin um, keeps on even, even when you hit, hit an animal. Hmm. So it's almost, I mean, it's been described like uh, using a drywall screw or a corkscrew. It just literally, uh, to me, it's like coring an apple. Hmm. It just puts a big old just hole in whatever. Coring an animal. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> right, and right. that's, a, you know, and hence the name of the the, uh, the company, Corkut. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so in your opinion, um, what what separates this technology from, and, and you talked a little bit about the, uh, you know, the feral technology, and I'm looking at a pack of the originals right here, and you could see, just to try to describe this to someone who's listening, is they're curved. Yes, sir. The blades are actually curved, and you kind of just went into it. But um, why, why do you think that is more devastating than a you know a regular fixed blade? Because you you didn't just come to the market and say we're only doing the curved. Because you see, there's people out there who say, well, I just want a a, 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 a fixed blade, so or straight straight edge blade, and so you have that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what's the advantage to the uh, to the curve in your opinion? Well. It- you have to look at the, the, the original story, why these were created in the, in, in the first place. Um, Scott Mackey, the original CEO mm-hmm. of, of Crimson Talon, was an avid hunter, and he'd been looking for years for something that would not win plane over distance, that would give him really good pass-through. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, a um, friend of his was a NASA engineer. So to say these were developed by a rocket scientist would really not be incorrect. <laughs> and uh, what his friend said was, well, you're doing it wrong. A flat surface has no aerodynamic properties. It mm. doesn't fly. So he put his mind to it and said, well, you know, what's the first thing you see in an airplane? Well, a curved wing. Or what a sports it? car. Or a sports car. Yeah. It's a, exactly the same principle. And by applying that principle to, um, to broadheads, it really sort of accomplished a couple of things. One, was, one is that, like I said, it imparts spin mm-hmm. to the broadhead. And now what you're really doing is, is your arrow, you're steering it from the front, not from the back with, with fletching. Right. So you're, you're, you're leading it. And if you, if you spin a top, what does it do? It auto-corrects. Right. As long as it's spinning, it auto-corrects. These things do exactly the same thing. They, huh. they auto-correct and stay, stay straight. So you don't get as much wind planing out of them, which means that they're going to be, you know, a lot more accurate. Um, and that spin, as we discussed earlier, um, has a devastating effect when it hits an animal. It, it leaves blood trails. I hate to quote, quote someone else and say they're the biggest blood trails, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. But but that's sort of the truth of it. So. Well, and, and that company that you just referenced, I've I've uh, I'm just not into mechanicals, and I'm not saying that you listeners out there, if they're working for you, great. But for me, oh, absolutely, I've there is a slight chance that something could go wrong, and so for that reason, I've just never messed with them. I've shot those uh, hypodermics before, and just 
they didn't pattern well for me and I just went back to old fixed blades and yeah and and I've got I haven't lost an animal knock on wood uh bow hunting you know I've it's taken a while to find a few uh, <laughs> and there will be a day when you know everyone loses one but uh so far I've had great luck with with fixed blades certainly looking forward to trying these in September on elk hunt and have been able to shoot them and they've been performing well so that's been nice to see so far uh you've you even had uh what archery magazine was it uh there was somebody was testing for you and said that they were getting uh grouping at 50 oh, yards, um, uh, crossbow magazine crossbow magazine yes sir yeah so you're a crossbow hunter now i am sir so you yes. offer these for uh for for both you know traditional bow hunters and uh compound bows and then also for crossbow folks right and they're getting great performance absolutely great performance out of them uh, three inches of drop at 50 yards yes sir it? Wow. Absolutely. And then retune the bow um, and boom. Then you're, you're, you're there every time. I can work with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, um, you know, some folks have told me that they require no tuning. Um, maybe for some people that's the case, but I, uh, I, I think you have to tune any yeah. broadhead. I mean, Absolutely. I, I just think that's normal. Yeah. Let me ask you this as far as the price point, because we've seen, we have some other brands out there now that are like, what, $90 for a three pack, mm-hmm. which is just absolutely absurd. Uh, I believe, um, and I've had buddies who've shot those and like, I way overpaid for this product, uh, and they've gone back to more of a, uh, what I would say, ten to twelve dollars a broadhead price point. What uh, what are these things retail for? Well, so these are retailing for uh, thirty nine ninety nine. Map of thirty four ninety nine. Uh-huh. If you buy it through. Um, some of the folks that we're sponsoring on on Instagram um, will give you a fifteen percent discount. We're offering a ten percent um, straight off the website, uh-huh. and, and there are a couple things going on there. Um, one, I never want us to be competing directly against um, anybody who's putting a lot of work into you know um, getting our name out, and, and I certainly don't want to compete with any of our our retailers, but. Really, to your point, when, when, when I was looking at a price point, I called probably every blade manufacturer in the United States. I talked to all sorts of people. I had one manufacturer, very reputable, who said, look, I can build the sharpest broadhead in the world for you if you want. It's going to cost you about $1,000 a broadhead, so it may not be too marketable, but it'll be sharp. Uh-huh. And really... Back to your point, what I'm trying to do is to bring the best quality broadhead to market that I can at a price an everyday working hunter can afford. Sure. That's sure. that's really what I'm after. Um, and there are going to be incremental improvements as, as we go along. I'm... Um, my wife accuses me that, that I can't leave anything alone. I have to tinker. Um, but, you know, if I can make it sharper, if I can make it stronger... That I'm going to do that. Sure. I'm not going to move the price. Yeah. Um, because I want this to be something that everybody can afford. And you're right. There, there are some great broadheads on the market if you want to spend $100 a pack for them. Yeah. But unfortunately for most people, me included, I mean, that's just really out of my reach. I would, and, uh, I'd lose like $400 worth of broadheads into the fence in my backyard in like a month's time. Um, <laughs> I'd be divorced pretty quickly, sir, if I did that. So. Uh, yeah, I admit, I, I miss once in a while. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially when you start tinkering with a new one, which is why, you know, it was exciting to see these perform. I I'd previously shot a, you know, a regular 100 grain fixed plate and this was pretty much you know same type of deal didn't have to tinker too much 
I'm trying to be as transparent with folks as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm telling them the materials that are going into this. I'm telling them that I do tinker with this. Yeah. I'm not going to make any announcements. Um, but like I said, if I can find a way to, to make it sharper, I'm making some small adjustments right now, moving the vent in about one millimeter, which sounds really minuscule. Mm-hmm. But what it does is allow me to add about one millimeter to the um, you know to the angle at the bevel. Okay. What, what that does is allow me now to make it even sharper than it was before. Right. And I'm not going to like I said, I, it's not something I'm going to put up on the website or Instagram or anything like that. The the way I operate is next year I want people to take them out of the pack and go, damn, I knew they were sharp. I just didn't remember them being this sharp. Right, right. You know, so if we can keep getting those incremental improvements, and, and I call them incremental because it, it's not changing the way the broadhead works, the way, you know, any of that aerodynamic function mm-hmm. operates. Sure. Again, just trying to make it a little bit stronger, a little bit sharper. So we'll keep on doing that. One other thing that I did want to ask you was, so I, sh- you know, I've got this elk hunt coming up. Mm-hmm. I shoot an elk. I maybe hit a rib, you know. Um, am I going to be able to pick one of these up and shoot it again? Uh, yes, sir. Um, no. I mean, durability-wise, you know, there's some broadheads, you, sh- you hit any type of bone, boom, it's over. No, it, from, from what I've seen, and this is our first season, uh, but from what I've seen so far, no, we haven't had any problems at all. Okay. Now, if you do stupid things like me and go shooting steel drums, then yes, I will guarantee you'll... <laughs> You'll, you'll bang up the edges. I wouldn't suggest yeah. shooting that a second time. Sure. <laughs> and then it's sure. rather beyond sharpening um, at, at that point. Yeah. Um, but like I said, so far, you know, the one thing I would add is that, um, and you'll see it on our website, um, I'm offering a lifetime guarantee on any of the broadheads. Hmm. If you break it, you bang it up, I, I'm going to replace it. Oh, wow. Awesome. Um, I'm, that, I'm that confident um and these things and that's for the lifetime of the broadhead so while i don't recommend you going around uh, you know shooting rocks and boulders and that kind of thing (laughs) if you do happen to hit one then send it back and i'll spend you a spanking new broadhead really awesome customer service there yeah so the gen 2 crimson talon these are 100 grains uh both of the options that we discussed today Uh, where can folks find you um, at the moment, um, on our website, uh, corecut.com, spelled K-O-R-E-K-U-T, mm-hmm. um, .com, that's the uh, the only place they're available um, at the moment. You guys have Instagram, obviously. We do have Instagram, sir, Instagram, you're, you're Facebook. You're a little older than me, so I, I like to see that you understand the value of, of social media, because there's a lot, there's a lot of guys that are... Um, let's just say my parents age are just like, why are you wasting your time on social media? Well, well, you know, really what you have to look at is, is who are going to be buying the broadheads. Right. Right. And the, you know, 75% of our market are ages 18 to 44 Mm -hmm. and anybody ages 18 to 44, where are they getting most of their information? Social media. Mm -hmm. Um, so for us not to do that would be. Yeah. Um, It'd be hard to start to bring back a new company. A a bit silly, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Now, are we going to only do social media? No. I mean, uh, we're brand new. I mean, we don't have a million-dollar budget. Um, This is, you know, I mean, at one one point, this was a fairly sizable company. Mm -hmm. Right now, this is just a, a, you know, 
a family business based out of North Texas. Yeah. Um, uh, so, well, we're yeah. looking forward to uh, to growing with you guys, and uh, we'll have hopefully a uh, a good report. It won't be the broadhead's fault if an elk isn't shot. I'm gonna put it that way. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 as I say, I mean, crimson talons are not going to turn a bad hunter into a good hunter. Yeah. Um, but my expectation is it can turn a good hunter into a better hunter. Right on, right on. Well, let's do a let's do a quick giveaway here. Uh, I'm gonna encourage everyone to email in. Let's just say broadhead, and we'll have them email into Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com, and uh, we're gonna give away a three pack of the originals. Uh, to one lucky listener, so they'll get to uh, take them for a spin this season as well. Sound good? Sounds good, sir. I appreciate it. And y'all be sure to follow along on Instagram. They're posting a lot of good stuff, and you're giving away, uh, you're doing a lot of giveaways on there, too. We are doing uh, a weekly giveaway um, for anybody who uh, follows, uh, follows us and tags a couple of buddies. It's, awesome. it's, we're, we're making you're this really... broadheads. We're giving away oh, broadheads. Right um, we, <laughs> Even better. You know, the, the, the big thing for us is we want to get the word out, and we want other people to get the word out. So what better way of doing it than to get people to actually use them? Right on, right on. Well, Dave, it's been a treat having you here in studio uh, so excited to have Crimson Talon as part of the show and and arising from the ashes, so to speak. So it's cool to see them back in the archery space. Thank you, sir. I appreciate appreciate the time. All right, Dave Biddle of Crimson Talon Broadheads. Fascinating stuff as far as the technology behind these broadheads. Uh, some pretty cool innovation on that front, and I will certainly report back as far as my experiences hunting with them this season. I'm expecting good things, no doubt. Now, that segment of the show, by the way, brought to you by the Vortex Fury HD Binos. I've got a set. Here's the cool thing about it. Uh, They've got a rangefinder built in. So, for all you minimalists out there who are tired of taking two pieces, both the rangefinder and binos, into your hunting sets or on your backcountry trips, Let me introduce you to the Vortex Fury. You can find it as well as Vortex's entire lineup of optics and their lifetime VIP transferable warranty right there at VortexOptics.com. Unfortunately, man, we've got to get out of here. Got to go flat out of time. Thanks to all of our guests today, Dave Biddle of Crimson Talon, Corey Mason of Dallas Safari Club, and Tom Mormon, our good friend and scientist from Ducks Unlimited. Uh, thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. We can run a trot line and a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive.